Today we're talking about transcutaneous vagus nerve stimulation, which is being used to treat conditions such as epilepsy, severe headaches, and depression. Joining us is Dr. Doug Bremner, who perhaps most notably stood up against the drug company Roche as an expert witness in litigation related to the relationship between Accutane, suicide, and depression. Dr. Bremer is excited about the use of vagus nerve stimulation as he believes it is not only beneficial for a number of conditions involving emotional dysregulation, but also in many circumstances safer than alternative pharmacological interventions. Dr. Bremner is an expert in post-traumatic stress disorder. He's worked at the Yale University School of Medicine and National Center for PTSD before moving to Emory University in Atlanta, where he serves as director of the Emory Clinical Neuroscience Research Unit among other roles. As always, nothing we say on the show should be taken as medical advice, so please speak to your doctor. Do those who suffer from PTSD and anxiety have a higher incidence of autoimmune problems? We've been looking at inflammatory function in PTSD, and we find that there's an increase in uh, stress-induced inflammatory function. So we have these protocols where we have people do stressful tasks and there's an increase in, for instance, interleukin-6, which is uh, one of the, the body's uh, systems for fighting infection, but we've also learned that th those systems also respond to stress. How does VNS modulate the pancreas and thus the inflammatory response? Vagal nerve stimulation, we found, reduces inflammation. How it, exactly the mechanism is not totally clear, but it's probably working through the uh, through the vagus nerve, which has controls a number of different bodily functions, including the inflammatory response and also the heart and, and the gut. How quickly do people with anxiety using VNS respond? The response is within seconds. So we, we can measure both inflammatory markers and also more acutely, we can measure measures of sympathetic nervous system function. So these are things that are indirect measures of how the heart and the peripheral blood vessels are reacting, and that happens within a few seconds. How noticeable is it to the patient themselves that they're feeling less anxious? Um, people report that they, they, you know, I've undergone it myself. You, can, you do feel a change. It's not really noticeable. But when we do these stress paradigms where we have people listen to recordings of a traumatic memory, we find that they have less of uh, less anger responses, less distress and anxiety. Yeah, so it's something that if you used it for a long period of time, you probably would notice a significant reduction in your stress, but the initial effects are not that, that strong in terms of anxiety. No, we get an initial effect. So we'll, we did a study where we had people listen to a script of a traumatic memory paired with with stimulation and compared to a sham stimulation, there is a reduction in subjective anxiety and, and anger. Wow. Okay. What NVNS devices on the market do you think are more likely to be effective to reduce anxiety? Well, there's both implantable devices, which you know, require surgical procedure and are more expensive and non-invasive devices. And the non-invasive devices, the, some are apply stimulation to the neck and then mm -hmm. some, which is the vagus nerve travels through the carotid sheath and the neck. And then there's also a branch of the vagus that 
is in the ear. And that's one of the things that we want to look at in the future is to compare the stimulation in the ear versus the neck and possibly the implanted devices. But we don't have any reason to believe that any one is better than another. The implantable devices have the advantage that you don't have to rely on the person to actually perform the simulation, but then they have the downside that it requires um, surgical intervention, which some people don't want to do. Given that it's hard to tell what the difference is between these different commercial devices, would a TENS device placed on the ear likely work just as well? These devices are basically like the, they're using the same principle as a TENS device, which is electrical stimulation. But then they've been programmed to provide the amount of the right um, parameters of stimulation that the electrical signal will go through the tissue and reach the vagus nerve and activate the vagus nerve. So I'm not sure that a TENS device would do the same thing. Okay. What is VNS's effect on the hedonic hotspots? What are the, I'm not familiar with that term. <laughs> the, the hedonic hotspots are areas like the nucleus accumbens, the orbital frontal cortex, areas where there's a oftentimes a concentration of uh, mu opioid receptors that at least in studies with, with animals, they display reactions that, that indicate the animal is feeling pleasure. So hedonia, hedonic, you know, pleasure. So what's VNS's effect on these pleasure areas of the brain? We have, we have shown effects on um, parts of the, the brain called the um, anterior cingulate or the medial prefrontal cortex would include the orbital frontal cortex. And what we specifically found is that, that VNS blocks activation of the anterior cingulate with stress. So that those brain areas are involved in pleasure, but they also respond to emotional stimuli and the anterior cingulate activates with emotional tasks and stressful tasks, and we can block that with VNS. Yeah, I've often heard about the anterior cingulate cortex as being discussed as, you know, important in terms of assigning meaning to a particular sensation. So uh, some of our other shows, we've, we've talked about pain control. And at least in hypnosis, it seems like the anterior cingulate cortex is activated in people that have the ability to um, reinterpret the meaning of stress and thus even do incredible things like some highly suggest to people it, if, if you believe the reports can basically undergo surgery with a lot less anesthesia or in some cases none at all and so I, that, that's curious to me that deactivation of the anterior cingulate cortex would be associated with making people feel better because at least in the case of hypnosis i've heard that it's actually important in terms of facilitating the the more positive affect do you have any thoughts on that the anterior cingulate does a number of things so what we're doing is we're pairing it with a stress paradigm so it's a little bit different than just like baseline function so as you pointed out anterior cingulate is involved in pain it's also involved in emotion so it activates with with emotional tasks so what we're I guess what we're doing is more ameliorating the emotional impact of these traumatic scripts. Yeah, people can induce auto-hypnosis. I can actually do it. Really? <laughs> yeah. It, that's another. That's a whole other field is, is hypnotizability. And, and it, as it relates to trauma is that there's this phenomenon called dissociation. And so there's long been an interest in what's the relationship between dissociation and hypnotizability. The answer is they may not really be directly related, but but 
you can measure hypnotizability like the, it varies in the general population and some people are more hypnotizable than others and interestingly one of the one of the ways that you can mark it mark that is how much people can roll their eyes back into their head which I yeah understood why that is but well, I asked a, David Spiegel the same question at, at Stanford, and I think his dad was one of the people who came up with that Stanford hypnotizability scale. And right. I said, what yeah, is I, it about seeing more sclera that matters? And he was like, we don't know. <laughs> yeah, I've known David for many years. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I published, edited a book a long time ago called Trauma, Memory, and, and Dissociation. He wrote a chapter in that. But so we've done kind of similar research going back a long time. But so that was one of the questions back then. It's one of these sort of academic areas that people kind of debated for a while and then they just dropped it and moved on. But there is that phenomenon of the hypnotizability and which my opinion was that hypnotizability is a different phenomenon than dissociation, although they look similar and that when people dissociate, they have similar experiences. But what we were interested in is the fact that people will dissociate during traumatic experiences. And then once they've dissociated, they will be more likely to dissociate with subsequent stresses. Yeah, it seems to me that what we're talking about in that case of dissociation is like, uh, it's almost like ringing in your ears over after an explosion has happened and it's disorienting. But instead of it just being confined to your auditory modality, it's like spread throughout every aspect of your consciousness. So everything just dulls. Whereas hypnosis implies active, a lot of focus, but on say like a, a particular imagery. Is, is that sort of where you're headed with the way that you, that you see them as different? Whereas other people might be using dissociation to mean, okay, they're going into a state of active focus on whatever imagery the hypnotist is giving to the subject. The original one of the original theories was that dissociation is a defense mechanism for trauma, so that children that are abused will dissociate and as a way to mentally protect themselves. And, and it is true if you look at, for instance, a, like a rape victim, they'll sometimes will say that they elevated above their body and looked at themselves from below and felt sorry for the person that was being victimized. And that's a classic dissociative symptom. Of, it's called depersonalization of being separated from your own body. And so that was a theory that it was protective. But then some of the studies we did, it didn't seem that the people who who developed this these reactions to stress were re really doing better in the long run in terms of their mental health and everything. So that was one theory is it's association is a protective mechanism. Our theory was that it's a, a marker of psychopathology and it's not really it doesn't seem to really help people that much, but the actual, the actual physical. So I wrote this scale called the clinician minister dissociative state scale that was used in the studies of ketamine. Ketamine is a drug that's, you know, it's used on the street. It's called special K and people will actually, in mm -hmm. one of the things that we observed when we were doing these initial studies of ketamine, which we later, was later developed into a treatment for depression and, now, now there's S-ketamine, it's a nasal form that's out on the market. But so one of the things we observed with ketamine is that people, you know, originally we thought it was like a model of psychosis, but then I actually noticed that they were dissociating. So people were saying that they're going out of their body. And so if you talk to people that have used ketamine on the street, they'll talk about going up into the clouds and commuting with other ketamine users. So that's like a, a dissociative out-of-body experience. And 
And, and we're actually doing studies now at Emory of ketamine as a treatment for pain, which is another thing. Ketamine's acting on these limbic brain areas like the hippocampus and probably the anterior cingulate that are involved in both pain and in emotion and, and the stress response and et cetera. But so I see dissociation as being a unique experience. And what we found is that the symptoms of dissociation correlate really highly with one another. So the amnesia you get with dissociation is really correlates really highly with being out of your body or having distortions in your perception of your own body. So people say that they're looking at themselves from above or that their arms become like toothpicks or become very large, or they see things like they're in black and white, or they see things like they're looking through a tunnel. And those are all a unique, but very specific set of experiences that I think is different than, than the state of being hypnotized. We don't really know what it, what hypnosis is, but it, the research studies, we haven't really been able to show that, for instance, highly hypnotized people, hypnotizable people have more dissociative symptoms. So those are weakly correlated. There's another phenomenon that this guy, John Kilstrom, made popular, which is sort of openness to experience. John Kilstrom was at, he was at uh, UC uh, Berkeley, I think. I'm not sure where he is now. And then he was at Yale. I'm not sure where he is mm-hmm. now, but he's a psychologist who studies these phenomenon. And there's this thing of called openness to experience, which is people that will cry at a movie or they'll become really enraptured watching a squirrel or just become really absorbed in things. So that's another one of these these kind of behavioral attributes. And people try to correlate that with hypnotizability with varying success. But it's, that's not really necessarily like a risk marker for susceptibility to psychological trauma that, as far as you know. And... Speaking of pain and hypnosis, do you have any idea how people are able to be operated on without anesthesia? Or a related phenomenon with med- meditation is uh, Thich Quan Duc in, in Vietnam when he lit himself on fire and seemed to sit there without any emotional affect that I could detect. How are these people doing it? Well, that would probably be a self-hypnosis, I think. Yeah. But you can't just say, okay, like... You and I, you said you had some hypnotic abilities, but I do not think that I could sit there and have gasoline poured on me and go up in flames. It's odd to me that if you talk to hypnotists who, for instance, John Butler in the UK has had a hernia surgery on himself and, and he didn't use any anesthesia. I said, how'd you do it? And he, when he describes it to me, it's basically positive self-talk or just he just tells himself that part of the body is numb and it is. And for someone like me that wants to understand, okay, but how would someone like me or others go about developing that ability? It's not like a nice systematic process of, of. Yeah. I don't think it's like a light switch. I I can tell you from my own experience, it wouldn't be like a light switch that you could just turn on and off. and, And it's not even something that I would necessarily like try and develop, but I, I, I can't, I've just became aware of this, number one, through like when I was reviewing these, some of the stuff that Herbert Spiegel wrote about, which is David Spiegel's father. And, yeah. and just from my, from the research we're doing on dissociation and then how that, the interest in terms of how it connected to hypnotizability, which I didn't study directly, but like one of my students worked with David Spiegel and done some of that work and stuff. But it, I've just, in the process of that and some other whoever the guy in the traveling carnival was that was coming through that was hypnotizing people kind of realized that I could do that. And the, and the way that you do it is you roll your eyes back into your head 
and then just use the suggested techniques that like a hypnotist would use on yourself, you know, that you're in a, like you're in a, you're a feather floating down to the earth or you're in an elevator and you create the imagery of, of the sensation of falling and induce, you know, this trance-like state that, that you can do on your own. And so that's, he may, he may have just said, I tell myself that part of my, now whether I could induce myself to undergo surgery without anesthesia, I don't think I would even want to try. You know? Sure. But if I were, sure. I would be interested to, he may say, I would tell myself that part of my body doesn't feel anything, but I'd be interested to know if he did some sort of induction. And my guess oh, is probably- Of course, but he's practiced so much over, I don't know, He may 40, not even be aware years. of what, what he does to induce himself. Right. He, he, I think, yeah, he's basically taking all, taken all of the steps and I think condensed them as much as possible. And he's been through it so many times that he can maybe skip steps that. And probably even just thinking about how he does it probably makes it harder. It's probably easier to do without really thinking consciously about what he's doing. Yeah, it's certainly some kind of a tacit ability. I've been looking for ways to break it down because I'm imagining a scenario where say a a building collapses, you're inside and you're pinned under some concrete or some steel beams or something of that sort. And the medics may not find you for a few days. Uh What do you do (laughs) to escape the misery of that situation? Something like being able to opt out of pain would be a very valuable skill. That'd be a classic example of where this whole intersection is of interest. Some people would say that you might some people might induce an auto-hypnotic trance and other people might dissociate. And my personal opinion is I think those would be two different processes. And probably the auto-hypnotic trance is probably more adaptive and in the long run more valuable, whereas the dissociative response is it may reduce the actual emotional pain at the time, but it, it may not like bode well for your long-term mental health. But are you opinion. defining dissociation is what I said earlier about things just get numb. It's like a ringing through your consciousness. No, I wouldn't describe it as that. That would be more like a hypnotic trance. I would call a dissociation a specific set of perceptual experiences that are hard for people to just rattle off the top of your head. But if you give them a checklist and you say, have you experienced this? They'll say, oh, they'll have kind of an aha experience where they'll say, oh yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, I had that, although I couldn't wouldn't have been able to verbalize it for you, but now that you describe it that way, that is what I felt. What are those things? It would be like, have you ever, these are just the items on this questionnaire I wrote. So are you having experience like you're experiencing, like you're looking at yourself from outside of your body? Um, I see. Do you, do things seem to be black and white? Does it look like you're looking at things through a tunnel or like a, like the looking through a, a telescope backwards? Gotcha. Um, the things you, you said earlier. Yeah. And it's pretty specific and, and it's not, so I've never experienced them. Thank goodness, in my opinion, but, but I have experienced auto-hypnotic trance and, but the development of the dissociation symptoms is from interviewing many people that have experienced that. And, and they do have a kind of an aha thing of, yeah, that's what happened to me. So to give you an example, someone said they were in combat in Vietnam and then they're, they're like, in hand-to-hand combat and then they separate from their body and they're just watching themselves doing this hand-to-hand combat and or people have gaps in time where they'll say a minute will go past and sometimes it'll be so extreme that they'll we've had people that ended up in in the woods and their combat fatigues and the next state over 
where they had hours that were lost or they'll feel like they're like things are like in a dream or the, the colors are very bright or they're in black and white or, and then, but then when they had that experience of feeling like they're in a dream, they'll also have gaps in memory. So they all go together and there's no like logical reason why that would be. But the one clue is that you can induce those exact symptoms with ketamine. Ketamine is very specific and ketamine is an NMDA receptor antagonist. And a lot of these the NMDA receptors are involved in memory and they're concentrated in the brain area involved in memory called the hippocampus. And that's the brain area that's sensitive to stress. So that's a, how we tie it all together. But why, so the people I worked with at Yale decided to develop this as a treatment of depression. I would have said, you're inducing dissociation, which we think is pathological. Why would you want to use that as a treatment of depression? But they they went ahead with it and it seems to work for depression. So there's a lot of paradoxes in this whole field. Why would a drug that induces these symptoms that we think are as marker pathology actually help treat the disorder? So it's unclear, but it is all, they're all going back to those same brain areas that we know are involved in emotion and stress and are sensitive to stress. What I was going to say about dissociation as you've defined it is this, and, and the fact that there's this, this contradiction between your work and I assume you're talking about Rachel Yehuda and those folks up at Yale. Because in meditation, oftentimes they'll, in, in the Buddhist tradition at least, they'll talk about the goal as being a non-psychotic form of derealization disorder or depersonalization derealization disorder. And even some of the Mahayana monks I've been around talk about it like you're almost watching yourself from above, but instead of being raped or having something traumatic happen to you, instead what's happening is that you're just sitting there meditating. For them, that's the point is to, and a lot of the Hindus talk about it like this as well, that that you lose this egoistic kind of definition of yourself as your body. And and that could be at a very three-dimensional sense. These are some of the questions that you know, I, I think I referred to people, they debated these things for a while and went back and forth and then they just dropped it and moved on. <laughs> like the degree to which, you know, some of those experiences that like people are trying to achieve in meditation and, and to what degree that is or is not the same as the dissociative symptoms that people experience with trauma. We have this model or these theory about what it is, but I don't, in the end, I'm not sure that we're hundred percent sure. So like, when you use that exa- example, I'm not 100% sure that traumatic dissociation is completely different than some of these other altered mental states. Mm. Um, we had this sort of theory that it, that traumatic dissociation is different than, for instance, auto-hypnotic states. And it's a marker pathology and it's not protective. But I'm not 100% sure that's true. I'm not sure how we would ever show that definitively. I'm not 100% sure that if someone says they're, I haven't meditated for weeks and months and to the point where I was inducing a different state where I'm looking at myself from above. So I don't, I don't have personal experience with that, but maybe that they are achieving the same position that someone achieves when they're go through a traumatic event. But one thing we can say is that the traumatic events lead to these these sort of responses are are involuntary. People don't think, oh, I'm going to go outside of my body right now. It just happens. And then once it does happen, we were able to show that you can go back. And so we did this study where we interviewed people and we said, okay, find a a memory from Vietnam. And did you have 
in that, did you feel out of your body? Did you feel like you're in a dream? And people remember, even if it's 20 years ago, yeah, I did feel like I was a dreamer because they're unique experiences that don't happen in everyday life. And then we'd say, okay, going back now, think of something stressful that happened, like you got a parking ticket or something. Did you have these symptoms? And the people that dissociated back in Vietnam can continue to dissociate with stressful experiences in their daily life. And those people also seem to be worse in terms of mental health outcomes. But, you know, how that compares to someone who does intensive meditation and is really practiced and achieved a different level of the consciousness, that's a good question. I don't, I'm not sure, 100% sure. My guess is that it's not exactly the same, but that they wouldn't say, for instance, have gaps in memory or distortions of the body, which would, and the other thing is that those symptoms are what they call flashbacks. So flashbacks are dissociative responses. They're not just like a strong memory. They're an actual recreating of an experience from the past in a dissociated state. It's authentic. You feel like you're actually there as opposed yes. to, oh, I remember that and it makes me upset. Right. Yeah. So there's a difference between flashbacks and strong memories or even intrusive memories. So intrusive memories are a symptom of PTSD. That's a strong memory that you can't control. If you were in Iraq, you remember the something that happened there and you keep thinking about it. That's not the same as a flashback. A flashback would be if you, you actually... An example I like to use is this movie Born on the Fourth of July, where the guy, I think it's Tom Cruise, he's in a bar, and he remembers an episode when he was in Vietnam, and they're running over the dunes, getting attacked by the Viet Cong on the beach, and he just is right back there, and he starts to relive the event as if it's a movie playing in front of his eyes. So that's like what a flashback would be. And so people will re-experience an event from the past, and then they'll be actually in the event, and they may even you know, get violent or something like that. So those things do happen. And that's and why I also want in a dissociated way. They may say, I felt like I was in a dream or I was seeing things in black and white or like a tunnel or there's a gaps in memory. If you question them a lot and get them to really pull out the, the details of the experience. I want to go back to VNS, especially mentioning people with PTSD, because this could be a potential treatment. And thinking about the pleasure centers again, how does VNS affect opioid receptors? I don't. I haven't seen anything on that. That, that it, it, the animal research is it's, and then some of the effects. It's paradoxical. Like we don't really understand exactly how how it's affecting what it does. But and say the same thing about antidepressants, right? So we know the antidepressants do certain things, but then the exact way in which their antidepressants acutely increase serotonin in the brain, but it takes two weeks for them to work. If the effect of antidepressants is to boost your deficient serotonin, why don't they work right away? Now, we don't know, but we have some theories. It could be that it's regulating nerve growth or changing long-term changes in receptors. So VNS, in a similar way to what antidepressants do, is it activates norepinephrine, serotonin, and, and dopamine in the brain. So it'll stimulate the, the locus ceruleus, which is the brainstem, which is where all the norepinephrine is, and it'll stimulate the serotonin in the in the um, raphe nucleus in the brainstem, and then they have neurons that release transmitters in intracingulate hippocampus, these kind of limbic brain areas. And um, one of the things about VNS is it'll stimulate that those receptors, but with antidepressants, you get a desensitization, like a loss of effect with time that doesn't occur for some reason with VNS. So VNS will. You know, stimulate release of these transmitters and it'll promote 
synaptic, the synapses, which are the connections between neurons, it'll promote those connections of neurons. And in animal models of like stroke, it'll promote nerve growth and plasticity. So it does all these good things. And those are all ways in which it could be, you know, beneficial for stress-related psychiatric disorders like depression and PTSD. How can we accurately compare the effect sizes of VNS and other electroceuticals to, say, the 21 antidepressants in that big meta-analysis by Cipriani et al., which compared the effect size of antidepressants? The effect size of, some people say that the effect of antidepressants is like two points on a 54-point scale over placebo, because there's a pretty strong placebo response. So you can get a statistically significant effect. But the magnitude of change is like not really great, but it is there and, and it's the best, the best thing we have. My guess is that the, the uh, electrical treatments are going to be better, but we're still early that some of the cyberonic trials were with implantable devices that they were only approved for people that had refractory depression who had failed to antidepressant trials. So it's hard to, and then the other thing is that they couldn't really do a placebo. You can't like insert a sh- fake device in someone's you know neck we didn't have good placebo yeah. controls but with the non-invasive devices we have these sham devices which are don't actually st- activate the vagus that we put on people's neck and they buzz and create a sensation like they have a an active device so my guess is it's, it's gonna it'll probably be better but early. We just started to do some trials. But, and so we have ORs in that big Cipriani study that I was mentioning earlier. And I assume there's ORs or, or Cohen D effect sizes that we could... You mean um, like odds ratio? You know, yeah. How can we, say, compare the, the strength of these effects in your research and others doing research on VNS to that big network meta-analysis? I think that we don't have, we haven't studied enough people yet. So we've just done a, like a trial of, we're just looking at the long-term effects now. We're analyzing the data now. And it looks like it's probably positive, but it'll take a while. There's some other things like whether we're able to get people to properly to fall through with doing the treatments. Cause they have to actually twice a day, put the thing on your neck and, and push the button and stand there for two minutes hard to get compliance with yeah so the what you know whether we're gonna we're gonna be able to get people who have ptsd patients who have problems with memory and problems with cognitive problems like getting lost easily and stuff like that whether they're gonna be but it looks like once you the the advantage is like once people seem to get if they're getting the active treatment there it seems to have positive cognitive effects that helps them be more compliant. (laughs) I've seen that some people that they seem to get more mentally organized because one of the things about vagal nerve stimulation is it reduces anxiety and sympathetic nerve function, but it also enhances memory. And so if you pair it with a cognitive task, you can improve learning. Yeah. I I saw that in some of your papers. I'm concerned about any long-term unwanted effects of say, because all kinds of people would want to use this. If you told me it would enhance my learning, relax my body, it sounds a lot like the benefits of meditation. What would be the dangers in, say, using a non-invasive VNS device every day for, for 20 years? What kinds of things would you be concerned about, even if there hasn't necessarily been evidence for it so far? I personally wouldn't. Side effects that it can cause 
you can simulate like the laryngeal nerve and you'll have hoarseness and stuff. We haven't really seen that a lot. I think I, I don't personally don't have any concerns about side effects. I think another thing we actually had an ethics conference about this. It was funded by DARPA, which is the program that we had funding from, which is the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. And they actually gave some money to this University of Arizona or Arizona State ethics uh, program who organized this conference with some of the people doing research in the area. And the, the topic was enhancement of human function. You've got artificial intelligence, but then one of these conferences, we had a venture capitalist come and say, we're going to invest a billion dollars into this field of enhancement of human function. So the idea would be if you're taking normal human abilities and then you're enhancing them through technology, whether that's going to be fair and that people can afford to spend $500 a month for to buy a, a vagal nerve simulation device to give to their kids so that they can stimulate themselves when they're studying for exams and are more likely to get into a better school and and have a higher income so that they can enhance the intellectual functioning or learning processes of their children, whereas other people that can't afford it. So that's a potential. Well, clean work. drinking water does that. Yes. <laughs> too, I mean, it, it, or or being things. able to, you know, have a large house that you can isolate in and get away from the coronavirus. Right. So this is another, you know, it's just yet another example of something where, but there, people have started to think about some of these things. And then another, like when we had this ethics conference, that was one topic is the enhancement of, of normal function and whether it's, there may be inequities in that. The other, another kind of topic was I was talking to my 22 year old son and he said, well, that sounds like an episode of Dark Mirror where they implanted this device, this mother implanted a device in her daughter's neck so she could see what she was doing. So if you're going around implanting devices in people's necks that you could, in theory, remotely control or whatever. People always love to talk about the dy dystopian type situations. And I think the first one to really do that in terms of the promise of making people's emotional lives radically better. Uh, one of the, one of the, I think, impediments to that in, in popular consciousness is Brave New World. Mm -hmm. And that I'll just take Soma and we won't be motivated to do anything. Mm -hmm. He wrote another book after that called The Island that was much more appreciative of the idea that there's this whole pharmacopoeia, maybe we could call it an electrocopia. There's gene enhancements. Yeah, just because you want to help some people doesn't mean you don't want to help everybody. And, and I mean, these are more like economic and, and sociological questions than, than medical ones. And maybe if people are less stressed out, and, and angry and <laughs> upset, then they'll be more open to doing things that create a, a, a more fair and egalitarian uh, culture. Because I think a lot of the reason why things are unequal is because everybody feels so afraid of being left behind and if you know removed of having to make your social and economic beliefs under the duress of sort of Darwinian molding on the African savanna to be neurotic and afraid of everything, then maybe we would be able to treat everybody better. But that's, I'll, I'll get off my soapbox um, and ask my next question, which is what interventions regrow brain areas damaged by the effects of PTSD? Hopefully VNS. If you look at the animal models of stroke, for instance, if you interrupt the blood supply to part of the brain and then there's damage and then you pair VNS with the training, for instance, in rats, if you get them to 
move turn a wheel using their paw that in the part of the brain involved in motor movement and then you you stimulate them every time they do that movement it'll actually induce nerve growth and and plasticity and, and cause nerves to grow back or plasticity of the brain to return but you know the in terms of the to kind of go back to the enhancement issue that, that you were talking about neil garrell she's at georgia tech and she her the person running her lab omarine and he that's how i got involved in this field in the first place is that he you know, georgia tech is their engineers and they invent devices and he was involved with this program with darpa which is called warrior web where they were they were they were doing things that are applicable to the military and in terms of enhancing ability of soldiers and and the warrior web project is just creating like an iron man type thing where you know like they were de- developing this knee brace that used auto auditory sensors that could see when the knee is recovering from injury or maybe creating goggles that you could have night vision but then you'd also have maybe a, a gps system and a map or and then maybe there would be like a, in theory you'd have a that headdress would have a a device that could stimulate your vagus nerve if you that might be useful when you're trying to memorize the, the details of a combat mission or something like that. So that whole idea, the idea of enhancing function goes beyond just like VNS. So there's the military is, is engaged in funding research and stuff that can create these sort of extra human abilities like Iron Man. It has its own, are we going to create a a distinct race of, or subgroup of humans that are enhanced. <laughs> this technology is going to continue to be developed. And yeah. I think we don't have the ability to stop it unless, you know, you're like Chinese centuries back who just said, we're not going to send any more ships out to discover new land or something. Unless you have that kind of unilateral power, which n- nobody in the world does, that's not going to be the case. And I would like to in some small way affect the trajectory rather than block all of it. And the, the vision that is exciting to me is the, the sort of the techno-Buddhist idea of, okay, the point of Buddhism, point of a lot of other religions is that suffering is really bad. And uh, now if you, even looking at sort of enlightenment philosophy, utilitarian type ethics, it's all about, it's all about the hedonia positive and negative emotion and we want to maximize the positive and minimize the negative so if there was a way to and i think the dalai lama was asked this if there was a way to have an implantable device in your head that would maintain your higher reasoning faculties and didn't make you do anything that was unsensible but took away all negative experience would you do it and he said yeah i would so, so that seems to be the point to me is that we could liberate everybody from. Well, that's kind of interesting. Least, you know, yeah. one of the things that, that like the the goal or like the ideal situation is be what in the kind of the engineering field they call closed loop. So closed loop would be if you were to go back to the soldier analogy, like you'd have a, or even just a PTSD patient. So one of the ideas is you'd have a device that would be Maybe it would be in your ear, which would be more convenient than having to hold a device to your neck. There'd be a device in your ear and, and you'd have physiological monitors that would sense when your sympathetic nervous system is being activated because you're walking into the Target store and you'd see someone that reminds you of someone that was your assailant or something. And mm-hmm. then your sympathetic nervous system would 
react and then the monitors would sense that and then it would send a signal to the vagal nerve stimulation in your ear and it would activate the vagus which would block that sympathetic response so that's an example of something where you could create a world where people would be chill all the time (laughs) yeah i I think that sounds great especially if you're combining it with moral enhancement and a psychopathy has a, a a basis in biological substrates as well and i'm actually going to interview somebody who thinks that a lot of anxiety and depressive symptoms his name is uh, dr bandalo he's in germany but he thinks it's like basically a, a malformation of the mu opioid receptor that could actually be playing a really important part in, in psychopathy and that these people do horrific things because um, it's basically like the only way that they can get um, their opioid fix Mm-hmm. Potentially, we could kill two birds with one stone if that theory is correct. Yeah, yeah. So those are. I think that the these things like this ethics conference that that they supported are good. I think it's good to get these things, talk about these things openly and and in advance rather than just wait for them to arrive and then try and deal with the aftermath. Try and think yeah. about what the potential positives or or negatives are. And that, I don't know if you've ever seen that show, the, the Dark Mirror show, but it, it yeah, is pretty good. Yeah, I watched at, all of them. Yeah, it's pretty good at raising a lot of these sorts of issues about things that, that could be coming along sooner than we think. Something similar to that loop, that, that example of, what did you, how, how did you loop. say it at Engineer? Closed. Yeah, closed, yeah a yeah. closed loop device. That's how thermometers work, right? It gets too hot or too cold in the room and then the thermometer or the... Yeah. That's a thermostat. Loop. Sorry, not a thermometer. A thermometer just tells you the temperature. The thermostat yeah. actually adjusts the, the room. But Robert Sapolsky at Stanford, at least for a number of years, I don't know if they're still doing it, was working on a stress vaccine. I wanted to know what you think of that. Basically, what it would do, it's like an inducible genetic vector that when you, different areas of your brain, I think it was in that area around the hippocampus and amygdala and mm-hmm. all of that, as soon as corticotropins were pumped out that have deleterious damaging effects on those parts of the brain, I think the promoter would release, I'm not sure about this, but I think like even estrogen or other other molecules that would tend to combat the the damaging effects. So, so what do you think of that as a, uh, a closed loop? That was, for, I think I was mentioning yeah. that we'd you know, done work on the the effects of stress on the hippocampus and then that had a lot of NMDA receptors and and which is where ketamine acts and all and that's the basis of dissociation so the the studies we did on the hippocampus was based on his work in animals showing that stress is maybe acting through cortisol is damaging to the neurons of the hippocampus another idea is that the these NMDA the glutamate and the excitatory amino acids involved in memory may actually be toxic at really high doses so that idea of developing a counterpoint to that that would be one way if there's some way to induce a gene or something in the like in the hippocampus for instance we had done some written some proposals to look at crf antagonists which is along the lines of i think that what he was doing which the idea is crf is drives the hpa axis which is part of the stress response but that Maybe a really high level CRF in the brain can cause anxiety and maybe toxicity. So the there is a they actually did develop a an antagonist, a drug that blocks CRF. And we're we were writing proposals to try it as a treatment as a way to prevent kind of the stress 
effects on the brain, like maybe even acutely give it to people right after a traumatic event or people that are susceptible to traumas that, to prevent brain damage from trauma. But those studies ran into some issues with, I think they had some toxicities of the drug. And um, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't really involved in, we'd written some proposals, I think that didn't get funded. And I think other people actually got money to do the studies and we're working with the, there's a couple of different companies developing these. And I think from what I heard that they may have had some liver toxicity or something and that caused them to be dropped. But there have been a lot of so, so what, Are you including in all of this, are, are you including groups that were trying to do stuff similar to Sapolsky? Because I don't know why there would be liver effects, say, if you just had like small amounts of different genes being expressed well, through, the, through an inducible promoter. I'm not really familiar with the deep. I think I may have heard vaguely about the Sapolsky thing okay. with the vaccine. So that would probably, my guess is that's probably something they were doing in animals. Like maybe they were doing something yeah. to affect gene expression or something like that. This yeah. this thing. I think they were genetic engineering. Yeah. So this would be something yeah. that would be the same concept of trying to like a vaccine or a, a preventative measure, but that it was actually a drug. So that there was, there were CRF antagonists that were actually developed by a couple of different companies. There would be a drug that you would take every day, but they would, the goal would be the same to prevent the, like a prophylactic people, maybe people take a drug to prevent getting HIV if they're sexually active. So that would be the yeah. concept is that you take it. And the way it would work, it would be blocking the effects of CRF, which is this peptide that is needed to activate your stress response. But using an analogy, what you were talking about before, maybe we don't really need it that much if we're not running around the savannah and with the threat of being attacked at any minute. That's one concept is that we've evolved this biology that allows us to survive highly dangerous situations that don't exist anymore. Like we don't really probably need to have an outpouring of CRF if your boss criticizes you at work or something. That's probably not useful. No, definitely not. Yeah, but it may have been useful <laughs> if you're in the savannah and a tiger jumped out from behind a bush. If you rapidly activated your stress as much, you could run away faster. And that might have been the difference between you surviving and not surviving and passing your genes on to the next generation. So the idea is... I mean, this might still sort of happen in, in India, right? They have tigers running around. Yeah, so maybe in India you need to steer up. But that's a common concept in the stress field is that we've developed these stress response systems that are no longer maybe serving the best purpose. And so maybe a kind of point to that would be to have people go around with vagal nerve stimulation devices in their ear that are on a closed-loop system that sort of like we don't need to live in the 100-degree heat. So we live in a house that has a thermometer that turns the temperature down that we yeah turn it off when you go on a safari but leave it yeah on so that, that that's the concept is that job. we could and we're actually doing moving in this direction of let's put it's called mobile health or so it'd be like putting devices on people that they live in, wear in daily life and then also have an app on your phone that will query you four times a day are you stressed right now so then we put all that data together and try and come up with a system that may be more moving towards a closed loop thing. So some of the the titles of some of the presentations we give are like towards a closed loop system. Interesting. Yeah. What different effects are caused by stimulating the left versus the right vagus nerve? It was thought at one point that the, the, the one of, I think that the right may have a direct pathway to the heart, but that hasn't really, the, we, and that if you simulate on the right, that you might have more cardiac side effects like high low blood pressure. But that hasn't really panned out. We haven't really found any 
So we started out simulating on the left just for that reason. But now, like in our treatment studies, we have them simulate for two minutes on the left and then wait a minute and then two minutes on the right. Is it possible to erase the negative valence of traumatic memories while maintaining all adaptive learning? The kind of going back to VNS is the idea that if you could, you could block the sympathetic activation that occurs with the traumatic memory, that people would be able to remember things, but they wouldn't have this aversive physiological reaction. So that's VNS is one example. People have been interested in drugs like cyclosterine that they could do a similar thing. And the idea would be that you could you could relive a memory, but it would not have the aversive physiologic reaction. So another example would be maybe giving a drug that might block the amygdala encoding. Or The idea is that when you encode a memory, it, it you can have the normal memory or it can be encoded with the amygdala tie-in that causes you to have a physiologic response when you remember it. And that some memories can become highly engraved and so that they become indelible and they're hardwired and not unconscious control and then become pathological intrusive memories. What substances would you expect to most enhance exposure therapy? Psychosterine was one that was looked into. I'm not sure if those, I think they had some positive effects for like uh, phobias. And the psychosterine, you know, it acts through the amygdala and it supposed to enhance extinction of tra- traumatic memory. I'm not sure if the PTSD trials came out positive or not. That was one. Then CRF antagonist was another approach that people took. And uh, the pe- you would think that drugs like, you know, benzodiazepines might be beneficial, but the studies of them, the, the, in, at least in the acute um, situations, seem to do more harm than good. Another one was... Uh, Propanolol, which is a beta-1 receptor antagonist. And the theory behind right. that was also that it would block, you know, the sort of the amygdala encoding. And there were a couple of small studies that um, seemed to be positive. But it, we tried to do a study like that when I was at Yale. And it was very difficult to do studies in the emergency room. We basically couldn't, we failed to get people just because it's people coming to the ER. It's very chaotic and both for the providers and for the patients and stuff. It's hard to do research like that. There's some studies using cortisol mm. as a treatment and glucocorticoids mm. that, that they claim efficacy. Why that would be, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I want to talk about cortisol but later, but beta blockers. If you were taking a beta blocker, say, before a traumatic incident, we're talking about soldiers, for example, this would be bad because you're not going to run as fast and stuff like that. But let's just say that somebody had taken uh, a beta blocker and then a traumatic event happened to them, would they be less likely to develop PTSD? You know, the animal, so to go back to benzodiazepines, those would be drugs like Xanax and Valium. The animal studies show that if you pretreat animals with benzodiazepines or antidepressants, and then you stress them that they don't develop the long-term effects of stress. And then it, there's another study, it was like a Holiday Inn fire this long time ago where they, interview people that were in this fire in a holiday inn and they found that the people that were drunk at the time had less long-term mental health effects. So that kind of makes sense because if you're not active, if your sympathetic system is not as, as dulled and then you're exposed to a trauma, you're not going to activate the sympathetic nervous system as much, which will probably, it doesn't get encoded in the amygdala as a, this sort of physiologically heightened event. So in theory, if you were taking, so the theory would be that if you 
were taking propanolol at the time that you were traumatized that you'd have less of a long-term adverse PTSD response. And that was the theory behind giving people propanolol on the ER. So the idea is that the problem is that they've already been traumatized, right? So it's after the fact. The theory would be that you would, that this process of the memory consolidation occurs at the time, but then it continues. So if you're learning a list of words, like a vocabulary exercise, yeah, yeah. It, there's a period of consolidation that, that lasts for about 10 minutes. And if you stimulate VNS in that period, that seems to enhance the retention where the memory is not kind of fully laid down yet. It's there in short-term storage. And so if you're trying to memorize vocabulary words, you're trying to get it into long-term storage, but that doesn't always happen. So, so the VNS idea would, would be bad to pair with exposure therapy, perhaps. Well, the VNS is good to pair if you're learning vocabulary words. With exposure therapy, the idea that it also in animal studies, it, it seems to enhance extinction. So it's not all of the, it seems that whatever effects it has, it's usually good, but it's not always easy to piece together a comprehensive model about why it's always seems to be good, but it does seem to be always good. So an so animal it model- you, It extinguishes emotional me- memories, but maybe not uh, vocabulary memories. It, it enhances like vocabulary type memory. So it enhances encoding of material, but it also seems to facilitate the pathways like from, there's pathways from the medial prefrontal cortex to the amygdala that are involved in extinction. So turning off the heightened emotional balance, it seems to, to stimulate those pathways. That's so, bizarre to me that they would it would act in a completely opposite manner. And part of me just wonders, and I want to be, and I am an enthusiast about VNS, but I wonder if I'm just, because I'm an enthusiast, I'm biased towards thinking it does all the right things in the right situations. But it but, does seem to do all the right things in the right situations, and there's not necessarily an explanation for why that is. It, it seems to be good for everything. <laughs> and why should there be something that's good for everything? It's, you wouldn't necessarily guess that in advance, but it does seem to be that way. It, you, it, one way to look at it is, is tapping into a system of the body that uh, you're enhancing a system of the body that is multi-organ system that's in the brain, it, in the periphery, and it's like a counterpoint to the stress response. So you've got a you got this integrated system of the body that is, is from your brain to your gallbladder to your spleen to your bone marrow that, that that is comprehensive and whose purpose is to survive the acute attack at the expense of long-term function. So it's, we don't care what happens 10 years from now. You just need to stay alive in this moment. And then you've got the counterpoint to that system. So one way to look at it is like the sympathetic and parasympathetic systems. Right. So VNS enhances parasympathetic and decreases sympathetic. But they're like yin and yang, they're balancing each other. So you're you know? moving the whole parasympathetic system to Yeah, to so you're sort injury. of moving yeah. this whole body-wide response, which has all these sort of effects. Positive of, effects, yeah. Positive effects of yeah. things that, that would be more like um, licking and grooming, the, the, what we what animals do when they're not under threat and they're, they're grooming and caring you know, for themselves and, and others. It's, it's sort of like the, it's if you had time to think about oh, yeah, there's a pleasant sensation on my tummy or something like that. And that signal would travel up through the vagus and would tend to right. calm you down cognitively and in, in right. other parts of your brain as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the vagus it's, has afferent and efferent fibers. E, 
afferent fibers are going to the brain and then the other ones are going to the body. And so it's the, the integrator of mind and brain, body and brain. It's a, and it sends signals back to the brain about what's happening in the periphery. So it'll signal the brain, well, oh, the inflammatory markers are going wacko. Something's going wrong in the body. There's an infection. I wonder why, I wonder if that's also the reason why body scanning meditation techniques like in Vipassana might um, help people relax. Because the whole point of that exercise is you're just feeling the sensations and you go down from your head to your toes and then back up. Does that sort of fit generally with, with the concept we were talking about earlier? Yeah. And then another thing is like, one of the things that people became aware of is like acupuncture. Some of the acupuncture points are like right in the tragus of the ear. Gee, that's an interesting place to put a a needle, but it's probably, it's activating the Mm. vagus nerve. What do you think of MDMA in combination with exposure therapy? Ecstasy? Yeah. Yeah. Some of the the resident, the psychiatry residents that working with me were doing some some studies with that. I think it's interesting and potentially promising. I like the idea of the, we're, we've been doing a study of ayahuasca, which is like another hallucinogen and, mm-hmm. and they do it in conjunction. They have a ceremony and then they'll have somebody who's actually brewing the bark, but then they'll have an assistant. So if people start to freak out or have a bad trip, they can take them aside and talk to them. And so I, I kind of like the, the ability to structured elements like that into into the experience rather than just give someone a hallucinogen and just say good luck see you in a few hours (laughs) i'm more concerned about drugs like psilocybin and you know dmt being i think most of the active hallucinogenic effect in in ayahuasca because you can have bad trips Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas it seems like and I'm not an expert from experience in these things, but it, it, from everything I've read about MDMA is that it, it's ecstasy. It feels great. You don't have bad trips on ecstasy or at least. The yeah, with ayahuasca, we were just studying that because we were curious about people who are already doing it. And we were just trying to tack on some questionnaires to see what, what the experiences were. So we weren't like developing that as a therapeutic modality, just more interested in, I see. in, in learning about this effects. A lot of the, the original hallucinogen and LSD research was done, started in research in psychiatry. And then that was like 40 years ago. And then they, they clamped down on all of it, which I think is unfortunate, but, and then they illegalize a lot of stuff, but now it's like the, now that all the young psychiatry residents, that's the kind of thing that they want to study is, you know, these right. things as, as potential treatment modalities. And you probably heard about some of the studies that they, where they're using psilocybin and people who with terminal illness. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And that reduced anxiety. Yeah. Um, so I think all that stuff is, I'm not sure why you'd want to use. So again, for this, for the same reason that you can have ba- bad trips, if you're working on trauma, anxiety, why would you risk giving something that could yield a bad trip when um, there are other substances that, well, I, I think that, that they, only they, make they, you feel good? They, I think that they do it in a way that they is facilitated. So they're, um, they have a protocol and a little ritual that they go through. And it's the same like with the ayahuasca where they'll, they'll have a couple of therapists there that are guiding people. And that makes a big difference rather than just say, give someone psilocybin and then see you in a few hours. And, and then there's a goal and the goal is to help people. They have a framework that we're all part of this 
we're all in this together and we're all part of this living earth and your your death may not just mean like the end and that's the goal is to help people see maybe when you die it is the end that this is just a direct (laughs) this artificial idea that you're part of this great organic but the outcome that people feel less hopeless and anxious is positive i think that's something to highlight yeah totally and I guess I'm not poo-pooing these because I think they should be used in research, but I I wonder why you would use anything that had, you know, a higher risk of having a a bad trip that could produce actually more trauma when there's something like MDMA that from everything I've read, uh, which isn't hugely extensive, but people just seem to always have a good time on MDMA. The MDMA studies are, they were giving it as an adjunct to therapy. So it enhances this feeling of trust and connection with the therapist. So they're actually doing therapy in conjunction with MDMA for, for PTSD and trauma. That was the logic. And then the, I think the psilocybin studies were not being done as treatment for trauma. They're sort of like being done to, in this framework of helping people come to grips with their role in the universe and their own mortality. So that's kind of a and maybe role. having a bad trip could actually be somewhat informative if it wasn't too traumatic. Because yeah, I don't know. I mean, they, they, those are different people. There are people with terminal illness who are having anxiety about their own death. They're not right. necessarily trauma survivors. And then I brought up the ayahuasca, but that's like a different kind of a whole different situation where we're these are people that are we're not commenting on whether we think it's therapeutic or not. We're just tacking on questionnaires to understand what the effects, behavioral effects are, this thing that people are doing anyway. But some of the questionnaires that got back are when you have asked specific questions and allow people to write in what their experiences are. And it's like the similar thing where they're becoming aware of the fact that they're part of this larger organic universe. Yeah. And you lose that sense of your body and (laughs) which sounds like dissociation. This is the weird paradox we were talking about earlier. But I don't know, again, I don't know why it would be helpful in this context. It doesn't really sound like dissociation. I never hear dissociative people saying, like, I became aware I'm a larger part of the universe. Unless you're talking about ketamine. Really? Maybe. I don't know. I haven't really interviewed a lot of people. And probably ayahuasca, too. I I don't know about Ayahuasca, that we were getting questionnaires on those people, and they were writing that they had this feeling of being a larger part of the universe. Yeah. Um, We haven't really done... I haven't really, we haven't done research on recreational ketamine users, so I don't know. Maybe, I'm not sure what they, I do know from what I've been told that they'll have this experience of going and talking to other people, but it's not, I'm part of a larger global universe. It's more like I'm going to go hang out with these other ketamine users up in the clouds. (laughs) Yeah, it gets bizarre. Yeah. (laughs) And DMT is even weirder. I interviewed Rick Strassman and. Oh, dimethyltryptamine. Uh, That one's supposed to be like the king of weird experience. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, people commonly report that there's something like machine elves. It's a meme, right? There's everybody sees machine elves, Hmm. and uh, yeah, all kinds of weird stuff is possible. And one thing that's actually different about the DMT experience, according to Strassman, than these other ones that we've talked about, where you experience a, a dissolution of the ego melding with the universe, is that the DMT experience is much more, 
I guess he, maybe he would say it's like ego-based or you don't lose the sense of I. The I is very much there. And I think if I were to make the stretch a bit, I think that this has led him to, to go from being one of the first people to study DMT in, at the University of New Mexico to, and he was a Buddhist at the time, but then I think because of his experience with DMT, he thought it had a lot more in common with the Hebrew Bible, which was much more, you know, framed the universe as, yes, you are a distinct individual, separate from other individuals, much different from the, the, the Buddhist or, or Hindu cosmology, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. But yeah, I was just thinking with, if people are trying to improve the efficacy of exposure therapy with um, their therapists or psychiatrists, I wonder, do you think that basically any drug that makes you feel good would allow, when you're recalling these traumatic memories, associating them with the positive feelings uh, that the drug is giving you could, could be a way of effectively eliminating the valence component of the memory, the negative valence component. Well, the the basic the strategy is to re-experience it. The strategy is that based on the observation that when people like have a traumatic experience, then they try and forget about it and then not talk about it or think about it. You know, that may work for some people, but for a lot of people, it comes back with a vengeance. The strategy would be, let's try and re-experience the traumatic event, but in a way that could eventually lead to not having that adverse reaction. Because, you know, it could be that you have a memory of the traumatic event, you have this incredible sympathetic reaction and hyper-reaction is so aversive that it says, oh, I'm never going to, I'm, I'm going to, in the future, I'm going to do everything I can to avoid that. So they go through this cycle where they're having things that trigger the memory, makes them feel a lot worse, and they're not moving towards getting better because it's just reinforcing the fact of how aversive it is. So like in cognitive behavioral therapy, they'll have people bring back the memory and then do these little exercises, imagine a peaceful field or something or and then dial the memory up and down and get some control over it so that they can eventually get to the point where they can, then they give them exercises where they have them go home and, and listen to the recording of the memory. We've been trying to get people to listen to recordings of the memory while they do VNS while at home, you know, variable success. But the, so then that would be the idea. So then if you could give a drug like cycloserine, for instance, it would eliminate that and would enhance the extinction of the of the hyper arousal that's associated with it then that in theory could be good so like with nmda you're reducing that sympathetic reaction you're also enhancing the feeling of connection which makes you more likely to be able to feel like you can trust the therapist and that it's a positive experience of relating the the experience as opposed to going into the therapist relating a aversive memory having shame and guilt and sympathetic activation and feeling worse. And then you leave and you say, that sucked. This isn't helping me. I'm not going to go back there anymore. So that would be the idea of benzodiazepines that you, if you could take benzodiazepines, you could feel more relaxed as you're recalling the memory. But the thing is that people have tried to use it in the ER and found that it made things worse. And the idea is that it also is screwing up memory. So maybe it's, you may be re-experiencing the memory in a way that less aversive, but you're not re-encoding it as a less aversive memory because you're, you screwed up your memory function, if that makes any sense. So explain more about that. Exactly. I, 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 I am confused about that because on one hand, what people are saying when they talk about how exposure therapy works is it's like Pavlovian conditioning. You yeah, ring yeah. the bell 
Every yeah. time the dog hears it, it salivates because it knows it's going to get food. And that can be turned off if you stop pairing the food with a bell. If you're pairing, recalling the traumatic experience with the euphoria of being on M MDMA, then eventually you're going to recode that, that memory in the same way that um, Pavlov's dog would. But on another level, you're saying that it doesn't work like that in the case of benzodiazepine. So what's the all sort of alternative model or models that can explain well, that? Well, the, the idea that the, the theory of benzodiazepines is that, is that you're, you are re-experiencing the event in a relaxed state, but since your memory is impaired, you're not able to re-encode it. So it doesn't have any long-term good effect. That's the idea. That's the theory, whether that's true or not. It's just based on the observation that they don't seem to help. So, the people say, why is that? And because in animal models, they seem to help. The, and the idea is maybe because it's interfering with memory, you're not re-encoding the memory in the neutral way. So, you, so it's sort of like you open the Word doc on your computer and you erase all the valence text, but then you forget to save. That okay. would be it, yeah. That's the theory, whether that's true or not. I don't know. This is all just based on one study in Israel that even alcohol would work on a similar basis, especially if you've had a lot. But I wonder if drinking a little bit of alcohol just before you go and talk to your therapist about your traumatic memory, I'm not recommending anyone do that. Obviously, we're not giving medical advice and this isn't tested. But in theory, would that... I, I took like the example of the Holiday yeah. Inn fire where they did yeah. find that the people that were drunk at the time of the fire did better. So that would be a, a way of, and then animal studies do show that whether it's alcohol, benzodiazepines, or opioids. Marijuana, I don't know. Yeah, that, that if you're, if you, basically if you're on a drug that's blocking your sympathetic activation at the time that it happens, it seems, at least in animal studies and maybe in people, is beneficial. So that it's, it, it does prevent encoding of traumatic memories. I think the problem is like once they're already encoded and they they developed this PTSD syndrome, you know, how you can alter things in a way that facilitate the extinction of memories, what it is. But people are definitely interested in substances or compounds that can enhance recovery. And they've gotten to the point where they've gone beyond like, psilocybin is illegal to, so what if it's a, you know, it's a, a drug of abuse or whatever, if it's bad, if it helps these really sick PTSD people, maybe we should try it anyway. So that's where we're at now. I think, you know, people are open to doing this kind of research. So Dr. Bremner and I spoke longer about these issues. And if you'd like us to talk again, and you'd like to hear that recording in particular, let us know. Dr. Bremner's a really friendly guy, so I'm sure he'd be willing to talk with me again. Um, I want to ask him more about his experience with Accutane. So if you'd like to hear more of that, uh, let me know. Also, this was recorded uh, about a year ago, but I followed up with Dr. Bremner via email and he said there hasn't been any big um, changes in um, the literature and you know, any major research findings. Um, all I can say is that you know, if you go to Cochrane or some of the more conservative places, um, you know, these meta-analysis type institutions, uh, they don't necessarily recommend vagus nerve simulation, but it seems to be a useful option in the arsenal of doctors when other things fail. Um, it's also got me really curious because if Dr. Remner's right and there are 
you know, a lack of very severe side effects, then this could be something potentially that helps all of us. Um, if you have any insights into this issue and would like to share them with the show, please let us know. Uh, if you're interested in volunteering, we have volunteering opportunities available. As always, we love donations. Um, the organization Invincible Wellbeing is about more than just the, the podcast and the radio show airing at Stanford. We um, also have our own research going on because we'd like to see a world in which there's less or maybe even no suffering. We invite you to come and take a look at our research and uh, we look forward to getting to know you.